much. I appreciate it. Good morning, ladies. Well, I'm a little travel weary. I got back from Nashville yesterday, spent um, Friday, Saturday, Sunday in Nashville with Katie visiting Belmont again. <laughs> but it was a great trip. We still don't know. We don't know, so don't ask. But we do know she's been accepted to all five schools to which she has applied, and she has a decision ahead of her. So that's a blessing. Yeah, that's a blessing. She found out at Belmont from her admissions counselor that she'd been accepted because we hadn't received the, received the letter yet. So she was very excited. She cried. Um, but she said, this is the best day of my life. Uh, but that doesn't mean she's going there. Uh, but uh, yeah, so we were a little travel weary. Two flights canceled, missed one flight, ended up in Minneapolis instead of Chicago, told we were going to be flying home at 10 p.m. when we left the house at 3.45 in the morning to get to the Franklin or to the Tennessee airport, uh, Nashville airport. Uh, I was a little, I was ready to cry. Katie was calming me down. Uh, but we were, she was able to get on standby and get home uh, at 3 o'clock in the afternoon and then because I was crying, the woman booked me on a 315 flight instead of a 10 o'clock flight. <laughs> I'm watching the plane leave with my daughter on it and me not on it. And she goes, Mrs. Kaiser, come over here. <laughs> yes. It's my baby on the plane. She said, how old is she? I said, she's 18. <laughs> and she said, I'm a mom. I understand. Well, they, they're always like that. That's for the rest of their lives. They're this little thing in your arms. So, uh, Amen. Uh, do you have any questions this morning? Yes, Diane. <laughs> I love the way she raised her hand. I have a question. Oh, yeah. And actually, I'm going to put them up there just like I had them in the Romans 3.28 and James 2.24. And we're going to walk through those quickly. <laughs> Any other questions? Well, let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for today. Thank you for being home in Omaha. I love Omaha. And uh, thank you for uh, a wonderful trip to Nashville and, and for a daughter who loves you uh, and whom I can trust to, to want to follow you in her decision. Thank you for your word and for this truth that has so struck me and caused me um, not only to want to grow deeper with you, but become more intimate with you and have that be my focus rather than what it is I do. Uh, thank you for the true and active living faith that you have provided everything we need to have and, and, and to know you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so I, you know what? I just decided to do this a minute ago, and I know it's probably going to cause us consternation at the end, but I'm going to read this whole passage because we're going to talk about it a little bit in whole, and so I want you to have it in front of you, as it were. I don't have it up there. That's what I have up there to begin with. So I'm just going to read it from my Bible, and if you have a Bible want to open it up and follow along, otherwise you can just listen. So James 2, 14 through 26. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if, not, if it is not accompanied by action, 
is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend." You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. In the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Dr. Doug Moo calls this passage that we've just read in James the most theologically significant portion of James's letter. He also calls it the most controversial paragraph in James's letter. So this is going to be some fun today uh, to walk through this. And, and so what I decided to do, because this helped me in the commentary, and I take this from Dr. Moose commentary, is that this, this outline, this basic structure that you have on a small sheet beside you and that I have on the PowerPoint, um, uh, it helped me to see the organization of James's passage and his argument. If this totally tanks, I will never do this again because I've never done anything like this before. So, uh, but, but I just want to talk through this, which is why I wanted you to have already heard the passage. So he begins in verse 14 with an introduction of the topic, which is that faith without works cannot save. He says, what good is it? With the obvious answer being, it's no good at all. It's not good. And then he gives the illustration of if you've got a guy who's essentially homeless, he has no clothes, he has no food, and your reaction to that is to say, well, God bless you, brother. I hope you find food and clothing. That's absurd. That's no help at all. It's no help to the man. What good is it? It's not. It's no good. And then he comes to the conclusion at the end of that that faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. It's no good. And then he, he starts this, this diatribe, as we're going to talk about in a little bit, where an objector comes in and says, essentially, you know, faith and deeds are separable. One person has faith, one person has deeds, we're all Christians, it's all, you know, let's sing Kumbaya and we're fine. And, and James' answer to that is no. Faith can only be shown, faith can only be demonstrated through deeds. And then he goes on to say that faith without deeds is useless. It's no good. And then he gives the example of Abraham in verses 21 through 23. And he says that Abraham was considered righteous by a deed. And then you go, oh, really? Man, that's not what Paul says. But immediately he says it was Abraham's faith that caused that deed, that caused him to behave in the way he did. And so he explains what he means by that. Therefore, justification, salvation, being made right with God requires Faith and works in the sense that it is faith that is demonstrated, um, that is shown through how we live. And then he gives the example of Rahab, which I love in verse 25, uh, and, and says that righteous was, Rahab was considered righteous by a deed. Uh, but again, we'll talk about what that means, um, because she was not justified by works, by what she did, but by a faith, by grace through faith 
you're going to see that, it, that he means the same thing as Paul, not a different thing. And then he ends with the same point. So he keeps hammering this home that faith without deeds is useless. So the theme here is really, really obvious. Um, he says it over and over again in verses 17, 20, and 26. He says that faith without deeds is dead. It's useless. And two other times he says, what good is it? With the obvious answer is no good. It's, it's not good at all. Now before we start, I want to make a couple of points, just general points about this passage. First of all, that James is not saying, and this is really important, James is not saying that we must add deeds to faith. So I've got this belief, and in order to be saved, I have to add deeds to it. Um, he's not saying that. Rather, he is saying that genuine biblical faith will invariably lead to action, to deeds. That if faith is true living faith, it acts. Dead faith doesn't act. But living faith does. It is this natural or maybe even supernatural outcome of faith. A life of faith is one that is characterized by obedience to what James called the royal law of love. To love God and to love one another. And you don't do that without acting. It does no good to tell someone you love them if you don't show them you love them, does it? And so that is a life of faith. As Jesus put it, and I had you read this, a good tree produces good fruit. It can't help but do it. You can't tell the tree, now stop making those apples unless you kill it, unless it's dead. A living, good, healthy tree produces living, good, healthy fruit. Now, this is connected to earlier teaching, and you probably already figured that out. It's connected, obviously, here because James is still concerned about those who are poor, about those who are in need. And he uses it as an example. Suppose you have someone who's homeless on the streets, essentially, is what he's saying. So, obviously, that concern is still in his mind. And, in fact, one theologian called this the capstone of James 1.26, of true religion, where he said true religion that God our Father considers as pure is this, to care for the widow and orphan in their distress and to keep from being polluted from the world, by the world. So that is obviously still on his mind and caring for those in physical need is the kind of deed that flows from a living faith. Now, does James contradict Paul? Well, you know, a little sort of spoiler alert here, the short answer is no. Uh, he does not contradict Paul, and I think we'll see that. Both Paul and James believed that faith is an active thing, that it is a living thing. Paul certainly taught over and over in Scripture, uh, in his letters, that, um, <clears throat> that faith will result in obedience that the, the obvious result of faith is obedience. But Paul and James were dealing with two completely kinds of people. They were writing letters to two completely kinds of people, particularly in those um, passages in Romans and Ephesians that, where he talks about we're saved by grace through faith and we can't earn it, and the, and the Romans passage. First and second Corinthians are different because he was dealing with some really nasty Corinthians that were living, in, and he's very different in those. Um, 
But James was dealing with a different kind of people. And, and James was dealing with people who misunderstood salvation through grace alone, uh, by grace alone, through faith alone. They saw faith as just some mere mental assent, an agreement with some to some ideas without any action. A profession of faith, that's just that, a profession. Words, but not lived out. Um, their mantra would be this, it doesn't matter um, how we live, only that we believe. That's all that matters. And James would disagree with that. But guess what? Paul disagreed with that as well. Paul, uh, both Paul and James, um, would say that, um, that, that would deny that, would say that uh, you can't just say, I only have to believe. I don't have to do anything about that faith. Paul was dealing with people who we today call Judaizers, who were, who were say, said they were Christians, but they taught that, yes, you have to have faith in Jesus and be circumcised and keep the ceremonial law and do this. And, and they were adding to that faith. And in Galatians, Paul says, that's no gospel at all, that, that we have faith and it is by that faith, it is by grace through faith that we're saved. So he was dealing with a different kind of people. And to that, you need faith and something else. Paul said, no, we can't earn our salvation. James would agree with that. Um, when he dealt with people like the Corinthians, where a guy was having an affair with his uh, stepmother and saying, hey, I'm free in Christ to do this because I have freedom in Christ to act this way. He said, kick that guy out of the church. <laughs> so Paul did not think, uh, did not believe that it didn't matter how we act, only that we believe. So Paul and James, I think, are in essential agreement. Um, the other difference between them and that we'll talk about is that Paul and James used the word works, which in the Greek even though it's, um, it's uh, interpreted works of the law in Paul and deeds in James. It's the same word in the Greek. Uh, it's this word ergon. Uh, and we'll see that even though it's the same Greek word, they, they use it differently. Um, they don't use it in the same sense. So he begins, uh, James begins with this example <clears throat> in verses 14 through 17. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. So he starts out again with this word brothers and sisters, or with this phrase brothers and sisters, which as we've seen indicates a topic shift uh, in James. And the topic shift now is, now I'm going to talk to you about how faith without works is no good. It's, it's useless. Faith without deeds uh, profits nothing. It gains nothing. And he, he hints right away that this sort of faith isn't really faith. Because what does he say? What if there's a man who claims to have faith? And so there's a real sense of a lack of validity in that, of that faith. That is not a true faith. And certainly the second question he asks affirms that. What good is it? And the obvious answer is, it's no good. 
The expected answer is, can this faith save him? The expected answer is, no. No, it can't. Because, not because he has to work to be saved, but because it's not real faith. It's not true, genuine faith. Um, and then he talks about this word deeds. So he says, uh, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds, that word is this word ergon. And, it, and as I said, and Paul uses the same word, but it's, it's translated works of the law, rightly. And in James, it's translated deeds, rightly. Because Paul means, when he says works of the law, the ceremonial law of Judaism, um, which is not necessary for salvation. For James, it means being obedient to God, doing what God has asked us to do. So what James is saying is that faith that is merely faith, that is merely belief in something where there is no change of heart or change of life or change of action is not saving faith. It is not true faith. In fact, James, and I believe Paul as well, would say it's not faith at all because true faith acts. And then he gives this example of mistreatment of a poor, of the poor, of a, uh, a person that, um, that gives this absurd answer to the person in need. And um, the wording there in the Greek um, connotes that this, this mistreatment of the poor is um, habitual, that, um, that it, it suggests that this is a pattern of behavior for this man that says, go and, and peace and be well fed. It's a life that continually ignores the poor. It's not someone who says, you know, will ha drives by a man that says, we'll work for food um, that one time. It's someone who continually, whose life is characterized by that. And it's a very vivid word picture that he gives. And it's a word picture of a man who uh, is continually without food and, and without good clothing to wear. And it means an outer garment. So someone who is in need of good food and warm clothing. Um, someone that we would, like a, a homeless person, we would see in, in our mind. But the response of the man to this is absurd. To say to someone, hey, hope you find food and, and clothing, when they're in need and you have the ability to make a difference, is absurd. But it isn't the words themselves that are wrong. To say to somebody, go in peace. Be well fed and, 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 and be clothed. In themselves, those words are not wrong. What is wrong, what makes them reprehensible, is that they are used as religious cover for a failure to act. They're used in a pious way for impious behavior. Because words will not give this person what he needs. What good is it for him to say this to this person in need? It's no good either to the man in need and to the man who said them. It's no good. So his conclusion in verse 17 then is, in the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. The words of the person who claims to have faith are as useless as his profession of faith is. It's no good. It is faith by itself. 
It is a mere profession. It is a mental assent with nothing behind it. So James says it's useless, and it's, it's inactive, it's inert. In fact, it is dead. Now, please note that the contrast being made here is not between faith and works. It is between dead faith and living faith. Between dead, useless faith and living, true, genuine, biblical faith. Dead faith does not produce works because, well, it's dead. That's why it doesn't produce works. It claims to believe things, but there has been no change of heart that causes action. Genuine faith is living and active. Genuine faith comes from a heart that has truly been changed by the living God, and it, it is acted out, it is lived out in a living faith. It acts in obedience to him. Now Paul's, or James, Paul, not James, James, not Paul, is going to go on, and, and this is going to be this um, beginning of a... <clears throat> of an imaginary conversation called a diatribe between himself and, in this case, an opponent. But someone will say, you have faith and I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? So this diatribe is this imaginary conversation that James is having to advance his argument. And um, a diatribe in, in ancient writing could be either with an adversary or with an ally. And there's some theologians that think this guy's an ally and not an adversary. I, I would uh, advocate that he's an adversary. The person that's having the um, conversation with the writer is called the interlocutor. I meant to write that down. I-N-T-E-R, I'm just spell it, I-N-T-E-R-L-O-C-U-T-O-R, um, inter interlocutor. And um, uh, there are lots of options. One of the issues here is where do the comments of the interlocutor end? You know where the NIV puts them because they put quotation marks around 18a. But someone will say, Mr. Interlocutor will say, you have faith and I have deeds. And then James answers that. I agree with that. But there are a whole lot of theologians that don't, that say his, um, his the interlocutor's words go on beyond that. Um, but I just want to have a general understanding of this, and I think I'm just going to teach you what I think makes the most sense. If I'm wrong when I get to heaven, I'll know it, so, um, and so will you. Uh, but for now, this is, this is where I want to start. So, but someone will say, you have faith and I have deeds. Th those are the words of the interlocutor. And he isn't saying, you, James, have faith, and I, Mr. Interlocutor, have deeds. He's saying, look, it's all kinds of believers. Some of them have faith, some of them have deeds. And essentially what he's saying is faith and deeds are, are separable. They don't have to go together. They can be separated. And then James comes in and... Um, he answers that in verses, in, starting in 18b through verse 20. And James essentially says, look, that's not right. Because faith is evidenced in how we live our lives. Our faith is shown, is demonstrated by that. Faith and deeds are not separable. You can't have one without the other. Rather, they are always and invariably found together. As Dr. Nystrom puts it, 
Uh, true faith, James insists, always changes the heart and therefore results in acts of mercy and compassion. Always. When someone has been changed by the living God, it shows in how we live. Now, he says, James says, show me your faith with your deeds and I will show you my faith by what I do. That word show can mean make visible. And the New Living Translation, which, which I think uh, puts it very nicely, is saying, uh, is saying that it means show by, it, by translating that passage this way. I can't see your faith if you don't have deeds. Can't see it. But that word can also mean prove or demonstrate. And so James could also be saying, prove to me you have faith. You say you have faith, prove it. Do something that shows me, that proves to me, that demonstrates to me that you have faith. I think James is meaning both things with that word. I think he that's why he chose that word. That if we have faith, it'll show. And it demonstrates our faith. It proves that we have faith when we act in ways that God would have us act. And then he uses this wonderful little thing about this. You say you believe in one God, good. Even the demons believe that. He talks about the faith of demons. Now, he could be being sarcastic here, and I kind of like that idea. You have faith? Hey, that's great. So do the demons, uh, and being sarcastic. But he actually could be actually giving them a commendation, a sincere commendation, because faith is a good thing. It is good to believe. We have to believe. But I love what uh, the theologian, I think it's C.E. Mitten, but Dr. Mitten for sure, um, said this. It is a good thing to possess an accurate theology but it is unsatisfactory unless that good theology also possesses us. And it is when that accurate theology possesses us that it shows. So what James is saying is the demons know there's a God and they even have a reaction, utter and complete fear because they understand the holiness of God, but they don't respond in obedience. Um, Dr. Moo calls them the most orthodox of theologians, calls demons the most orthodox of theologians. But they aren't saved. It's not a saving faith. It's not a faith that reacts in obedience. And then in verse 20, um, James turns and addresses the interlocutor, and he says, you foolish man, you foolish person. That word for foolish literally means empty. You empty man. Um, which means completely lacking in understanding, stubborn, hard-hearted, ignorant. Wow, James is pretty serious here, isn't he? That's, that's a hard-hitting thing. You ignorant, hard-hearted, stubborn, empty man. Do you need proof? Then I'm going to give you proof. And he gives him proof in the form of two examples, beginning with um, Abraham in verses 21 to 24, was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? Now, if you just take that, you'd go, he's made righteous by what he did? Well, that doesn't sound like Paul. But look at the very next thing he says. The very next thing he says is, you see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not 
by faith alone. So uh, what I want you to do as we go through this is I want you to keep Genesis 15 in mind because when he says Abraham was considered righteous um, and it was, or, or Abraham believed and he was accredited with righteousness, he's talking about Genesis 15. So I want you to keep this in mind as we go through this. So I put it up here. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abraham said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him and said, This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abraham, Abram, believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. This is Genesis 15. This is Abram's faith. And this came first. This is, is showing that it is his faith that was credited to him as righteousness. And what we're going to see is that this has been on James's mind all along. In fact, he's going to refer to it. Uh, it wasn't that Abraham was justified or saved by what he did. It was that he had a faith that caused him to do what he did. He was justified by a faith lived out. By lived out faith. And Abraham's obedience, the particular thing that... Um, James refers to in here is his offering of his son, his only son, Isaac, on the altar. Now, you all know the story. He didn't actually have to do it, but he was willing to. He was willing to obey, even though this was the kid. This was the one God promised. And this was the one. It was through Isaac and Isaac alone that he would have a, a multitude of offspring more numerous than the stars. Well, how can you do that, God, if I kill him? And still he believed, still Abraham believed that God would do it. He had faith, and that faith resulted in his obedience. There is so much foreshadowing of Jesus in that story, but I'm not teaching Genesis. Uh, I'm teaching James. Um, so our, for our purposes, it is Abraham's action and obedience that matters. Um, so Abraham's faith in chapter 15 is it precedes his action in chapter 22. In chapter 22, he offered Isaac, but it was in chapter 15 that Abraham said, I believe you, God. I believe you can do this. I'm an old man. My wife's an old woman. In Hebrews, the Greek kind of intimates that he was impotent as well. Uh, and, and I'll tell you what, Sarah was definitely way past childbearing years. I still believe. I believe you're God, and you can do this. So Abraham's faith was no mere mental assent. It wasn't just some profession of faith. He didn't just say, I believe. He lived, I believe. He demonstrated his faith with action. His faith was an active force in his life. But what does it mean here that his faith was made complete by his actions? Well, that word is, is telling you, and we saw this word um, in Hebrews, and it means to, to be made perfect or to bring to perfection or maturity. Um, and what I want to look at here to understand this is 1 John 4.12, which says, if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. 
Now, obviously, that doesn't mean that God's love is made complete when we love each other, as if God's love is somehow lacking and it needs our love to complete it. That's not what he's saying. Rather, he's saying God's love comes to full expression in us. It reaches its goal. It reaches its intended end when we love each other, when we express God's love to each other. That's what God wants for us. That's the maturing that God wants for us. So here in James, James is saying that Abraham's um, faith reached its intended goal when he obeyed God, that God always wanted his faith to be lived out. And it reached that goal. It came to maturity. And the results, James tell us, are that Abraham was credited with righteousness, that Abraham believed, as, as we learned in uh, 15, 6, Genesis 15, 6, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and that he was called God's friend. Now, nowhere in the Old Testament are, are those exact words that where God says, you are my friend, but certainly the idea is there, and there are several references to Abraham as God's friend and, and God's beloved, and certainly it's, it's all over ancient Jewish tradition that Abraham was God's friend. Well, let's get to this verse that's the center of controversy. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. So that's James. A person is justified. Romans 3.28, a person is justified. James 2.24, by what he does. Uh, by, uh, Romans 3.28, by faith, apart from the works of the law. And then James adds, and not by faith alone. So how then do these get married together? That James is saying that a person is justified, a person is made right with God by works and not by faith alone. And Paul is saying that a person is justified by faith alone, or by faith and not by works of the law. First let me say that this is just taking two verses, <laughs> and there's a danger in doing that. But I also think they're saying two very different things. And so that's why I'm, I'm doing this. There are two key differences in these verses. The first one is that James says that a person is justified by what he does. Uh, and Paul says, so by deeds. And Paul says a person is not justified by works of the law. Those are two very different things. James is saying that we are saved by an active faith, a faith that responds to God in obedience. Paul is saying that we are saved by grace through this same kind of faith, this faith that acts, but not by keeping acts of the ceremonial law. So, Paul, by, so James is saying we're saved by obedience, by faith lived down in obedience. And Paul is saying, we're not saved by acts of the law. It's not Jesus and circumcision. It's not Jesus and dietary laws. It's a living, it's, it's just Jesus. It's just a living act of faith in Jesus. Paul would never say that we don't have to obey God's moral law. And James would never say that we are saved by any work separated from faith. The meaning of faith is the same for both men. Paul uses the word faith and describes it throughout Romans and the rest of his letters as an active walk of obedience. I could give you a million examples, but let me just give you one. 
But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. When we have the Spirit living and active in us, us it, we walk it. We live it. And James agrees with that. But James here also uses the term faith alone. He's saying we're not saved by a dead faith. We're not saved by a faith that is just a profession. It's just words. We're saved by a living and active faith. Paul would agree with that. Indeed, there is no contradiction. Let me tell you what Dallas Willard says, because this really helps me. He put it this way. Grace is not opposed to effort. It's not opposed to deeds. Grace is opposed to earning. We don't earn our salvation. Because we have been saved by grace, we live it. We act on it. So then he gives the example of Rahab. A very different person than Abraham. In the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. And I'm just going to assume you understand the background um, of Rahab. But he begins by saying, in the same way. Now, that's connected to the story of Abraham, not that last verse that a person is, is, not, is saved by what he does. She's saying, just as Abraham was saved by a saving faith, by faith that led to action, so too um, Rahab was considered uh, righteous by what she did, by her faith lived out. So Rahab was a prostitute uh, who protected the spies. She gave them lodging, she hid them, and then she sent them off. They, she said they went that away, and then she, she sent them this way. But the point isn't that she did that. The point is why she did that. And we learned why she did that in Joshua 2, where it says, before the spies lay down for the night, she, Rahab, went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord, your God, is God in heaven above and on the earth below. This is a woman from a pagan community saying, God's God. And she didn't just say it. She didn't just say, I know God's God, but I'm not going to do anything about it. I know God's God, so I'm going to protect you. I'm going to act in obedience to God because God is God. So the point isn't just what she did. It's her faith. Rahab's actions were based on her faith in God. Her actions completed her faith. It brought her to the end, to the maturity, to the place where God wanted her to be, the intended goal. But why Rahab? I mean, he could have picked anybody. And he picked, he picked a woman who wasn't a Jew, who was a prostitute, for heaven's sakes. Why Rahab? Well, first of all, she showed hospitality to people in need. And that's kind of on James's heart, isn't it? That's kind of important to James. But I think there's an even more likely um, reason. I think James wanted to give a contrasting example to Abraham. You see, Abraham 
was a patriarch. He was a hero of the faith. He was Abraham our father. He was on a pedestal for, pedestal for, for James's readers. He was extraordinary for his faith. How do you believe that at 100 and your wife's 90 and you're impotent and she's way past her childbearing years that y'all are going to have a baby together? His faith was extraordinary. But Rahab was an obscure Gentile woman of questionable repute. And I think James's point might very well be, you don't have to be special. We don't have to have a great faith. Our faith just needs to be in a great God. Anyone can live a life of faith, whether patriarch or prostitute. This is possible for all of us, not just for those with extraordinary faith. God's desire for each of us is to have a living, breathing faith. And he has provided everything we need to have it. Well, then James summarizes um, this whole passage by saying, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. He's reiterating his theme with this analogy that faith without deeds is like a body without a spirit. Because the spirit is the thing that animates the body, that gives it life. When, when the spirit leaves a body, the body dies. It's dead. And in the same way, James says, that faith without deeds causes it to be dead. It's not faith. It dies. A living faith is a faith that works. Um, last year when I taught Hebrews, um, pretty much if you, if you mentioned Hebrews, the first thing anyone thinks of is Hebrews 11, the faith chapter. And it begins by defining faith. And then it gives examples of faith, heroes of the faith. So we're just going to read part of the first part of Hebrews. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, Noah, when he was warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as an inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. So this, this, these are heroes of the, by, uh, of the faith. And we hear, by faith, Abel brought a better offering. By faith, Noah built an ark. By faith, Abraham left his home to go where God wanted him to do. And on and on and on. By faith, because of their faith, they all did something. They all acted on the, that faith. They didn't just say, yeah, I believe in you. And I'm going to live the way I want to. I believe in you, so I'm going to obey. I'm going to build an ark on dry land. Really? There hasn't even been any rain. And you're telling people, it's going to rain. God said so. He acted on it. He did something. Ladies, that is our calling too, to live out the gospel of Jesus Christ. I have two favorite books. I cannot decide between them. One is C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. The other one is Dietrich Bonhoeffer's The Cost of Discipleship. I read them both in college and was slayed by them. And in The Cost of Discipleship, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who gave his life for his faith, he was killed by the Nazis um, in, in Germany. Um, talks about a thing called cheap grace. Grace that costs nothing. When we have a faith that does not respond to God with obedience, we have cheap grace. Let me read to you what Bonhoeffer says about this. 
Cheap grace is grace as a doctrine, a principle, a system. It means forgiveness of sins proclaimed as a general truth, the love of God taught as the Christian conception of God, and intellectual assent to the, that idea is held to be sufficient to secure remission of sins. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without repentance, baptism without church discipline. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Cheap grace is a grace that costs us nothing. How can a grace that costs God the life of his son cost me nothing? It is grace that crossed us Cost us nothing. Salvation is indeed free. We can't earn it, but salvation is a call to follow Jesus Christ, and it is a costly thing. That grace is costly. Again, Dr. Bonhoeffer teaching about or talking about costly grace, and I put this whole quote in here because I could not cut it down. The the book I read cut it down and I said no 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 I'm gonna go get my book and I'm gonna do the whole thing even though it's 1126. Costly grace is, a, is the gospel which must be sought again and again and again. The gift which must be asked for. The door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin. It is grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it cost God the life of his son. You were bought at a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. Bonhoeffer also said that only he who believes is obedient, and only he who is obedient believes. So let's bring this down to our lives. Um, David, King David once offered the priest Aruna a bunch of animals free to sacrifice. And Aruna's answer to David was, I will not sacrifice anything that costs me nothing. That's what I want. I desperately want do not want to live a life that costs me nothing. I want to live a life, I want to spend my life on what matters to God. I want my heart to be broken by the things that break the heart of God. Not so I can just walk around with a broken heart, but so I can have a kind of faith that acts upon that broken heart, even though I am a broken person to love and to serve others by his power, in his name, and for his glory. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, don't let us settle for cheap grace. Don't let us settle for dead faith. Give us a faith that is so living and active that it exudes from every pore of our body, not for our glory and not by our power, but by your power and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, ladies. I'll see you next week.